MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail! Welcome to Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, August 27th, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. As you know, it was a big week in Atlanta as all 19 racketeering defendants, including Donald Trump, have been now booked at the Fulton County Jail. But meanwhile, in the Jack Smith investigations, the DOJ has responded to Trump's April 2026 trial date request. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to say that without laughing. It's apparently impossible to say that without laughing. And we have an update on three cases awaiting D.C. Circuit rulings that could impact Jack Smith's case against Donald Trump. Yeah, and we've been following those cases here on this program, uh, but we wanted to give you an update. And it was—it just so happens that your colleagues at CNN um, put together a wonderful update on all three of those cases. So it's, it's good, it's timely, and I look forward to, to discussing that. And then down in Florida, Judge Aileen Cannon did not take the opportunity to delay the May 2024 trial date when she ordered superseding defendant De Oliveira to be subject to the deadlines in the court's scheduling order. Also, Department of Justice entered a detailed filing responding to Woodward and Cannon's questions about Stanley Woodward's conflict of interest and the use of grand juries in two jurisdictions. And if you have any questions for Andy or I, or even Brian Greer, who is our in-house SEPA expert, you can send them to us via email at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just put Jack in the subject line. All right, Andy, let's start in D.C. today. Yeah, let's go right to that filing by DOJ opposing Trump's motion for an April 2026 trial date. Okay, so you will recall, A.G., I have no doubt, that Trump had a bunch of reasons for requesting the somewhat ridiculous, uh, ridiculously long date. And those reasons included, first, what he referred to as this massive amount of discovery that they had been so unfairly burdened with. And he notoriously described it in his uh, request as being, if you stacked it all up, I don't know, end to end, (laughs) it would be taller than the Washington Monument and longer than reading War and Peace 72 times a day. I don't, I don't see how they could be possible. Maybe saying "War and Peace" seventy-two times a day. I'm not sure, but <laughs> and I like how it's stacked end to end, not how regular people stack paper. Yeah, it's it's like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. So, in addition to all this crazy discovery, they also cited. Um, they claim that the median length of a conspiracy case from commencement to termination is 29.4 months. And I remember hearing that initially and thinking like, based on what exactly, right? right? Yeah. I'm not even sure that DOJ keeps those numbers, but we'll get into Jack's uh, response in a second. Uh, Trump also cited SEPA hearings as something that would require, you know, this incredibly long trial date. 
And then finally, he referred to the fact that Jack Smith had requested that jury selection in the case in D.C., the Jan 6 case, begin on December 11th, which conflicts with a hearing in the documents case that had previously been scheduled for the same day. Keeping all yeah. that straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the first thing that you asked, right, about the 29.4 months, based on what, right? Well, yes. Jack Smith obliterates this argument uh, as saying the average time to try, what was it, a Title 18 U.S. Code 371 charge. That's right, 371. And, and they said 29.4 months. Uh, because of errors in how Trump's team calculated that, Jack Smith tears this apart. First of all, Jack Smith says, and I, I love that he figured this out. <laughs> so first of all, 29.4 is the average time through sentencing. Right. Which just not, not <laughs> the beginning of trial, meaning it included not just how long it took to get to trial, but the entire trial and then sentencing, sentencing recommendations, responses to sentencing recommendations, and then sentencing. That's right. <laughs> That's the equivalent of saying the Christmas season extends for six months as long as you begin counting in the summer. Right. <laughs> it's just not part of the same thing. Cases get hung up on sentencing for all kinds of reasons. If you have cooperators, they can't be sentenced even after the case is over until their cooperation has concluded. So there's all kinds of crazy factors like that that could add to the overall time that a matter is still pending, uh, but it's not the length of the trial. Right. Remember Greenberg? I mean, his sentencing was put off for two years. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly, exactly. Also, Andy, Trump's team only used cases in the years 2021 and 2022 after the massive COVID court backlog. And during the time, only 22 cases were heard those years because of the shutdown. Yeah, a little cherry picking of the years for the statistics there, for <laughs> sure. Let's pick the slowest years in the history of American jurisprudence and use those as our example. Yep. And third, he used January 6 cases that also included superseding indictments, mm -hmm. plea negotiations, pretrial detention hearings. And one of the cases is had 19 defendants. So, again, not comparable. No. At all. Um, so just to totally obliterated that argument. And of course, with the regard to the volume of discovery, uh, Jack Smith first argued, hey, uh, about 65% of this you've already seen. Trump's already seen. So, That's right. You know, let's, we're, we're about two thirds up at the Washington Monument now. There you go. You've, you've climbed uh, two thirds of the monument. And and no doubt the the expert services of uh, e-discovery firms are are lined up behind you to help you get up the, the final third. Because as we know, you know, electronic discovery is not, okay, I've been given 6,000 binders of paper and now I have to leaf through them one after another. There's all sorts of really effective uh, electronic searches that you run through that material to kind of direct you to those things that you need to look at, and it uh, speeds the review. A lot of it is duplicative. Uh, Jack Smith uses uh, an example in his res in his uh, response. There's apparently 3.1 million pages of Secret Service emails. Uh, many of those are duplicates. Interesting also, he wanted us to know that, uh, especially given the recent crew investigation showing emails back and forth between the service and Oath Keepers uh, leader, Stuart Rhodes, 
Uh, and also kind of noting that they're still investigating the, the infamous missing Secret Service text messages. So that was kind of a, uh, an interesting little Easter egg hidden in the motion papers. Yeah, I, I pointed that out. I was like, it jumped off the page at me. I was like, oh, 3.1 million Secret Service emails? Fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, also, uh, <laughs> with regard to the discovery in the Washington Monument graph that they put in there and the, and the reference to War and Peace, Jack Smith says, uh, quote, in cases such as this one, the burden of reviewing discovery cannot be measured by page count alone. And comparisons to the height of the Washington Monument and the length of a Tolstoy novel are neither helpful nor insightful. In fact, comparisons such as those are a distraction from the issue at hand, which is determining what is required to prepare for trial. Very well said. Yeah, full on, full on. And then responding to the uh, SEPA argument, like, oh, this we need 2026 because there's so much SEPA here, um, Jack Smith's team states, Quote, the defendant also contends that the existence of classified discovery necessitates delay, but this is not a case about classified information, and the government does not anticipate introducing classified materials in its case in chief. As the government will explain during the August 28th hearing under Section 2 of the Classified Information Procedures Act, SEPA, there's no reason that the SEPA discovery process in this case cannot proceed quickly and in parallel with the schedule proposed by the government. And this was really interesting to me in light of our conversations with Brian, um, because as he walked us through the kind of several phases of the SEPA process, uh, those initial phases just kind of defining the scope of what's going to be turned over and what's not going to be turned over, the fact that the government is not actually going to rely on any classified evidence at the trial, which means they don't have to bring in classified sensitive material and protect it from ex public exposure and things like that, that cuts most of the most challenging phases of the process out, right? You're not fighting over substitutions and uh, things of that nature. It's just really more mechanical in terms of there's probably a very limited amount of classified discovery. They have to figure out how and when and where they're going to, they're going to hand that, make that information available, but that's probably the extent of it. Yeah. And I, when I would read that passage case in chief, um, you know, I'm a huge nerd. So I look up case in chief and the case in chief is the, the evidence in the, the part of the trial that the uh, prosecution presents. Right. That's right. So if there is a rebuttal of defense evidence by the prosecutors, that is not part of your case in chief. Uh, the, the, the case in chief is what you what you present as evidence, not what you use evidence that you might use to rebut what the defense puts up as a defense. And so I asked Brian, um, so not using this in a case in chief, could that mean that maybe they have a couple of classified documents that they might use to rebut some defense? Uh, and he's like, that's one guess. He said, yep, that's one thing that, it, that, that, that they could mean by that. But also it could simply mean that it is relevant or adjacent to this case, but isn't going to be presented at trial or used as a rebuttal to a potential defense. Uh, so again, uh, he agreed that, the, the, that these minimal marginal SEPA hearings or hearing could be done in parallel with the with the rest of uh, the schedule, the court schedule. Yeah, I, I think that's a great explanation. I, I think um, 
really the use of the term case in chief here is very artful way of them saying, essentially, we're not going to use any classified material in the case, but we don't want to rule out the possibility. You know, you got to be very careful when you're making these statements to the court because you don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to say something that you have to go back on later. So by framing it that way, I think they're saying, hey, we're basically 99% sure we're not going to have to. We're not going to close the door entirely at this point, uh, but it's unlikely. Yeah. And uh, the final argument here, and Andy, you called it. (laughs) (laughs) On the December 11th jury selection, conflicting with December 11th evidentiary hearings down in Florida, let's listen to what you and I said about this particular, because this was a filing Trump made in Florida, right? He's like, your honor, can you believe the gall (laughs) of the Department of Justice scheduling jury selection in a whole other crime that I did during an evidentiary hearing for a crime I did over here. How dare they? And we talked briefly about it in last week's episode. Let's replay what we said last week. I imagine DOJ will probably file something quickly uh, to say, oh, well, let's remedy this and we'll put this here and this here. Um, we We hereby inform Judge Chudkin that we've decided to move our proposed date for the beginning of jury selection to December 12th. Okay, so now let's <laughs> let's read what the what the DOJ had to say about this conflict. The defense points out that the government's proposal to start jury selection on December 11th, 2023 conflicts with a motions hearing in the criminal case in the Southern District of Florida. Such true conflicts are easily addressed. The government now proposes instead that jury selection begin later during the week of (laughs) later during the week of December 11th to accommodate the hearing date in the Florida case. I mean, it's exactly what you said. I mean, they didn't they didn't say December 12th, but they, you know, they basically did. (laughs) I, you know, despite the uh, the high and mighty tone of their alerting the judge to this dastardly conflict. It just seemed like a really easy problem to solve. Okay, we'll take the next day or the one after that. Whatever. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so good. Uh, and they put it at the end too, right? Like, oh, and by the way. <laughs> those, so it's just kind of... Those silly boys on the other side of the aisle. Let's put them back in their place. Yeah, that didn't seem like it was going to really uh, break the process in half. So we'll see. We'll see where this one comes out. I I still think our kind of spin on it last week is holding. Um, you know, I doubt it's going to go quite as quickly. I, I think the trial date they get won't be quite as aggressive as the one that the government has asked for, but I don't think it'll be nearly as lackadaisical as the one that Trump has asked for in 2026. Of course not. Yeah. And I think we'll know tomorrow. Uh, I think we'll know sooner rather than later. That is the hearing is is on the 28th. So we'll we'll know soon. There you go. All right. We have more to discuss about the D.C. case, but we need to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. OK, let's talk about several key cases that are pending decision in the D.C. Circuit Court that could impact Jack Smith's case against Trump. So this reporting comes from Sneed and Polentz at CNN. And they tell us that at least three court cases touching legal issues that could affect special counsel Jack Smith's approach are ripe for rulings in the D.C. Circuit. 
The rulings, once they come, will likely shape how U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin may, may view the law and the charges against the former president in the criminal election subversion proceedings over which she is presiding. Okay, in one case, Trump ally and Republican Representative Scott Perry is challenging the access federal investigators can have to his phone in the 2020 election subversion probe. Another dispute is over Trump's sweeping immunity claims in the civil lawsuits that have sought to hold him accountable for his actions leading up to the January 6, 2021 Capitol assault. And the third case relates to the obstruction statute that's been a central charge in the Capitol riot prosecutions. Smith's indictment of the former president in the election case includes two charges based on this provision in question. Now, there's no guarantee that the rulings will come out in the coming weeks, but the start of the new D.C. Circuit term in early September puts additional pressure on the circuit judges to clear out their opinions in lingering cases. Judges do not generally like to take old business into the new session, and they get some pressure from the presiding judge uh, to move their dockets forward. So I think it's a, a fair guess that we could see some movement on some of these cases. Yeah. And and the first one, I, I don't really see how this, it's called the Robertson case. I'm not really sure how it impacts Trump uh, because the arguments about how, it, you know, it could possibly impact the rioters on the ground, it, it's about whether or not they personally benefited. And we know Donald Trump personally benefited, uh, you know, from, from uh, try you know, had the obstruction been successful uh, at more than just delaying the count, right? That's right. That uh, the, the presidency has value. So these, this, this case is really more about asking whether the January 6th rioters uh, would benefit so basically, Robertson is focused on how the word corruptly should be interpreted. He claims it should only apply to defendants who acted dishonestly to benefit themselves. And his argument to the D.C. Circuit is uh, sought to distinguish him from how Trump may have personally benefited. Uh, this case is before Judge Karen Henderson, Nina Pillard, and Florence Pan. The latter two were appointed to the bench by Barack Obama and uh, then Joe Biden, respectively. Uh, so that's that case is there. And, you know, like I said, I don't think that this really particularly has any impact on whether Trump can be prosecuted under under 1512, Title 18, 1512. I think that's right. I think I think Robertson has a legitimate appeal here. Um, he's trying to say, you know, he didn't do he didn't he didn't do this corruptly, attack the Capitol because there was nothing in it for him personally. He wasn't doing it for some to uh, corruptly or inappropriately acquire some benefit for himself. You could make the opposite argument, but I'm just saying that I think he's he's got a decent, um, he has a decent argument to make there, but Trump really does not, right? This was all about him retaining power, retaining the presidency. Um, hard to imagine a, a greater benefit to him. Uh, so I, I think, I don't think the corruptly interpretation is going to be, you know, however they decide to define it, I think it's probably a pretty good chance that Trump will fall within that definition. Yeah. And I do think that they'll uphold the current uh, view of the of the statute. Uh, I don't think it's ambiguous. Uh, and I think that it'll still apply to all these January 6th rioters. Um, what about the case about Scott Perry's phone? Yeah. So this one is interesting. It's been... Uh, 
kind of a hotly contested matter since it happened. Uh, we've talked about it quite a few times. So some of the legal dispute over the FBI's search of Perry's phone remains under seal. So it's a little bit hard to get perfect clarity on this. But the appeals court did hold a portion of its February argument in the case in public. And at that hearing, which was before Trump-appointed circuit judges Gregory Katzis and Naomi Rao and Ronald Reagan-appointee Henderson, the judges had tough questions for both sides of the case. Uh, what the D.C. Circuit ultimately says will likely affect not just prosecutors' pursuit of information from Perry's phone and what the special counsel can obtain of his communications uh, with alleged conspirators or Trump himself, but also future law enforcement efforts that touch on members of Congress more broadly, both in the 2020 election context and in other criminal investigations down the road. And as we've discussed on this before, A.G., this uh, any investigative efforts uh, that run at a sitting member of Congress invariably raise arguments along the speech and debate clause lines. And there are some guidelines as to what fits within that clause and therefore cannot be kind of the, the subject of criminal action and what doesn't. But it seems that each case is so different. They're all very fact dependent. We kind of end up with these uh, appellate uh, arguments. One of the reasons why investigating members of Congress is, is so complicated and sensitive in the FBI. Absolutely. And also the third thing here is a, a decision in the dispute heard by the D.C. Circuit last December over whether Trump enjoys sweeping immunity in the civil lawsuits that have been brought against him, uh, namely by Democratic members of, of Congress. Um, we know Swalwell mm -hmm. and both Benny Johnson sued him, but Benny Johnson tabled his lawsuit because he became the chair of the January 6th Select Committee. And then uh, Blasingame et al., which are Capitol Police officers. That's right. Uh, for allegedly egging on the mob that interrupted Congress's January 6th certification. Now, the department called on the D.C. Circuit to reject Trump's broad immunity claims and argued that the president cannot be immune for speech on a matter of public concern if the speech is found to have incited violence. That's an early signal in court that the DOJ would look critically at Trump's actions after the 2020 elections and not defend him as acting within the duties of his job. However, Smith's case as a criminal prosecution differs, as we know, to the approach taken by the civil litigants in other ways. But the special counsel has not brought any charges that require to look critically or legally at the speech that he gave on the ellipse. There's no incitement charge. Um, the, the charge here is uh, under 241, Title 18, Section 241, which is conspiracy against rights, uh, specifically our rights to have our vote counted. Mm hmm. But the ruling in Trump's civil immunity could shape the defense in a criminal case, right? Because if he can get somehow get some sort of sweeping immunity here, then maybe that's a defense that he brings up. And he's already brought it up to the public, right? Like, I'm immune from everything. Sure. Uh, we, we know Meadows is, is claiming immunity down in, in Georgia where he's been indicted, saying, you know, as an officer uh, of the government, I enjoy absolute immunity. Uh, in these situations. So I, I don't think this one's going to hold up, but we are waiting for that decision. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it'll hold up either, but uh, it, it was crucially important that uh, DOJ take a position on these cases that's consistent with the position they'll have to take in the criminal cases, in Jack Smith's cases, in reaction to those Trump defenses. 
right? We know that Trump is going to say, hey, this can't, you know, I was with acting within the scope of my duties. I should be immune from criminal prosecution for these things that I was doing as president. And so if in, in the civil cases, uh, the department was going to support that interpretation, you know, he would bring that up in the criminal cases as evidence of the fact that he was acting within the scope of his duty. So the fact that they are saying um, that he cannot be absolutely immune for speech on a matter of public concern if the speech is found to have incited violence, that's a good foundation uh, yeah. for Jack Smith. It, or I guess you could think of it as it, they, they, avoid, they avoided creating a problem for him, which is good. Yeah, and I think that that was very clearly to me on purpose. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah for sure. Um, I, I I do appreciate. There's a lot of there's so many things that go into, and you know we we know this from just looking at the Mueller investigation. So many considerations go into future dealings. Um, a lot of these privilege arguments that Merrick Garland got out of the way early uh, have really helped. Um, these, you know, these subsequent uh, investigation, investigatory steps, uh, because all of the, you know, all the privilege battles took six minutes, you know, <laughs> they're right. like, we already, we already contended with all of this. And so every single subsequent privilege battle was able to just bam, 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 be hashed out pretty, yeah. pretty immediately and pretty quickly. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's good to remember that DOJ bears the burden of precedent, right? They have to take positions that, that they can maintain consistently across multiple prosecutions, multiple civil lawsuits. The defense doesn't have to do anything about that. The, the, the job of prosecutors is to create an, a build a, build a castle out of sand, right? create a narrative, bring in the evidence, show how it fits the elements of the crime, tell it all to a jury in a compelling and convincing way. That's a, you know, this is a, a creation of a theme and a narrative and a story that can be believed and accepted as true. All the defense has to do is come in with the wrecking ball and knock it down in one way, in, in big ways or small and, and walk away. And, and um, so DOJ has always got that longer term mentality like if we take this position in this case, how is it going to affect us down the road in different cases? So they seem to be doing that here, which is good. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. All right. We have to take another quick break before we head down to Florida. Uh, so we're going to do that now. And um, we've got we've got a lot more to discuss, but uh, we'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Let's head down to Florida and talk about the back and forth between Jack Smith and Judge Aileen Cannon in the documents case. Specifically, because this is a big story and it kind of got drowned out by what's going on in Atlanta. Yes, it did. Uh, but this specifically questions surrounding a pair of Garcia hearings. Garcia hearings, as we talked about last week, are conflict of interest hearings, right, for, for, people, for witnesses and defendants who are being represented by a, a, the same lawyer. And, and then, of course, Judge Cannon's questions uh, about the utilization of two grand juries or the continuation of using a grand jury in D.C. after the Mar-a-Lago indictments came down. Now, we know Andrew Weissman has pointed out that the Stanley Woodward complained about these two grand juries on Fox News. And that's what apparently gave Judge Cannon this idea. But uh, to be fair... Uh, he also raised, Wood, Woodward also raised this in a hearing in front of Judge Cannon quite a bit back in July. 
Uh, so what the Department of Justice do is doing in this filing is it's responding, it's responding to, to Aileen Cannon's suggestion on her own that there's something abusive about the use of a D.C. grand jury after the Mar-a-Lago indictments had already happened. Right. She's like, I'll, I'll read I'll read you the the little bit of it. But she's like, well, you know, Stanley Woodward, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You might also want to ask about why. Jack Smith is using a D.C. grand jury, uh, continuing to use that after you've already been indicted, you know, like. Yeah. Just, and it mm. came up so out of any kind of context. Right. It comes right. up out of the the conversation about whether or not they should actually have a Garcia hearing over Woodward's representation of of these two uh, these two witnesses, defendants. Um, and, and she just pulls it out of the blue, like, oh, by the way, Woodward. Yeah. Don't forget to complain about this because I've noticed it and I, I think it's suspicious as well. That's certainly, you know, the the way you could uh, you could interpret what she said. That seemed like it to me. She's given a couple she's dropped a couple hints for for Trump's side in, in minute orders before and in rulings before. And this one was no different. Um, she did it a lot during the special master uh, thing that ended up embarrassing her. Uh, by having to have her her rulings vacated uh, by the 11th Circuit. Now, the Department of Justice wanted a Garcia hearing. They want a Garcia hearing about Stanley Woodward because he represents Tavares, right? Tavares right. is the IT guy, but he also represents Walt Nauda and also two other potential witnesses. <laughs> so <laughs> DOJ tried to file the details of the conflict of interest under seal, but Cannon struck that. And invited Woodward, like like I said, to file a response and basically coached him. She said, the response shall address the legal propriety of using an out-of-district grand jury. You know, that's that's what she said. And then right on cue, Stanley Woodward files his response to the motion for the Garcia hearing and accused Jack Smith of attempting to, quote, diminish Judge Cannon's authority by using the D.C. grand jury to abusively continue to investigate an already indicted case, which is just absolute horseshit. And pardon the French, Andy, but like, <laughs> that's just not what happened. Uh, and we talked about this filing last week. Uh, Woodward's solution to the conflict of interest, he was like, oh, well, all you have to do is just not allow Tavares to testify. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> this whole thing was just like, uh, it, it's unbelievable. You know, Woodward basically takes the hint Right. She, she says, right. uh, hint, hint, wink, wink. You might want to take a swing at this topic. And he's like, oh, I'll take a swing. All right. I'll go ahead and swing for the fences and I'll, I'll call the grand jury. Uh, I'll call it uh, abusively continue to investigate an already indicted case. It, and, you know, it, when when this first came out, I thought to myself, is it possible that she is not familiar with this idea that oftentimes more than one grand jury is involved in the same case. Because even on just timing, grand jurors don't sit forever. And some cases, some investigations go on longer than the term of a grand jury. So you put a bunch of evidence in front of one grand jury, they expire, then you have to uh, represent it to a new grand jury to finish out the case. Like I don't, it just left so many holes. Like, and again, mm-hmm. with Eileen Cannon, I'm trying really hard not to just reflexively assume that she says and does these things as a reflection of some sort of bias that, but, but the only other 
explanation for a lot of these uh, just crazy rulings is that she's just not that capable. So I don't yeah. know. At the end of the day, I don't know which is worse, but but I guess we'll find out. Right. Yeah. I, which which is worse, incompetence or bad guy? Uh, yeah. We'll see. But the, the, so the Department of Justice was like, you want us to file this under seal? Why we need a Garcia hearing? She's like, no. And they're like, all right. I just see Jack like cracking his knuckles. Like, you want to know why? You want the public to know why we're using a D.C. grand jury? You you that's what you want. OK, here you go. <laughs> And so we filed it's full on Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the timeline. <laughs> he filed it on the public docket. He was forced to, but almost, I could almost be like, like, you know, like he's probably, I don't think he's sad that he had to, <laughs> that he had to file no. this on the public docket. So he no. goes, he goes, all right, here's what happened in March of this year. Tavares and De Oliveira lied their faces off to right. the grand jury in D.C. And then Jack Smith tells the world that Tavares was repped by Stanley Woodward, who, by the way, was referred to him by a Trump lawyer, which is important. It's an important distinction that Tavares didn't go out and find this lawyer himself. And that this lawyer is being paid for by Trump's Save America PAC. By Trump. Yep. So he's like... All right, we'll put this all on the public docket. You want to go? Let's fucking go. Excuse my French. Then on June 8th, uh, Jack indicts Nauda and Trump. Not De Oliveira yet, right? Right. He comes then, in round two. Yep. And then on June 20th, a couple weeks later, the Department of Justice informs Tavares through Woodward, which he points out, which is very important. They mm-hmm. didn't informed Tavares directly. They went through his lawyer, Woodward, who's paid for by a Trump PAC, who was referred to by a Trump lawyer. They informed him that he was a target of perjury in D.C. because he lied to the D.C. grand jury. Which is in D.C. (laughs) Just to be clear. (laughs) That's why the D.C. grand jury is investigating this perjury in D.C. It's not to... Uh, uh, subvert your honor's authority <laughs> or uh, or uh what was it abusively investigate the already mm-hmm. indicted case no no this is like cleaning up the the, the mess that these whole lawyers brand have new created case. yeah whole brand new case this whole is called perjury case. and we're going to tell you all on the public docket and when they sent that target letter uh DOJ says that crystallized the conflict of interest Because having Tavares correct his testimony would implicate Nauda. So if Woodward advised Tavares to correct his testimony, he screws one of his clients. Right. But if he tells, so it's now impossible for Woodward to act in the best interest of both clients. Right. So it's what we said last week. It's the most obvious and direct (laughs) conflict in representation. There's sometimes, you know, a family hires a lawyer because two kids are in trouble and there's a one in a million chance that one kid might want to point the finger at the other kid, but it's probably never going to happen. In a case like that, you might say, okay, we let both kids know, both defendants know what the potential conflict is and give them the opportunity to waive it. This is not a potential conflict. This is like a full-on fist fight in the lunchroom we're going at it. There's no, uh, there's no way out. It's a conflict. It's unavoidable. It's, yeah, he, he cannot represent both to their best interest. Um, right. and, and so that week, 
the, the Department of Justice asked for a Garcia hearing in D.C., a conflict of interest hearing, right? Yep. And Woodward, he, Jack Smith puts in this filing, by the way, Woodward, you didn't object to the Garcia hearing back then. So why are you objecting to a Garcia hearing now? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And this was uh, in front of uh, Chief Judge Boesberg because he handles grand jury matters. He's the chief judge. And Boesberg immediately asked a public defender to advise Tavares. And when Tavares uh, was advised by this public defender, immediately Tavares fired Woodward, wanted to be repped by the public defender, and corrected his testimony, <laughs> which is what we imagined happened, right? And, yeah. and, and to be fair, I think the Washington Post reported that, that something to that effect did happen. Mm-hmm. But now we have it in writing from the DOJ, who wanted to originally file this under seal, but now must tell the public this series of events. Now we know. Could you imagine what that first meeting was like between the public defender and Tavares? It must have been very short. It it starts with, do you want to go to jail? (laughs) And Tavares says, no. And then the public defender says, okay, well, then here's what you got to do. You got to get rid of that guy. I'll represent you. And then we go from there. Yeah. Very simple. You will avoid indictment. Yeah. And he did. And he did. And now everybody knows, including De La Vera and Walt Nauda, who are both being represented by lawyers. Paper. They have to be sitting there, right, going, mm, I wonder if my Trump paid for attorney isn't representing me in my best interests, because now we've got this public filing on the docket from Jack Smith about what happened with their pal, Tavares. Yeah. yeah. And that's why the D.C. grand jury was investigating after the indictment. Jack notes that the grand jury in D.C., by the way, wrapped up their investigation August 17th. That was last week. Mm -hmm. And the government notes it could find no precedent, by the way, in which a district judge struck incriminating testimony against a defendant in order to solve a conflict of interest. <laughs> except, except in one case where the judge was overturned on appeal for having done so. So your, your uh, stupid idea of, well, we just won't just, you don't need to hear Tavares' testimony. We just won't have it. Even though the entire superseding indictment case and conspiracy to, you know, delete the surveillance footage relies specifically on Tavares' testimony. We just we just won't have it in court. Yeah, DOJ is like there's that has never once happened in the history of the universe except once, and that judge was overturned. You know that that suggestion from Woodward is so absurd, but I almost have to give him a little bit of credit because knowing his audience is Eileen Cannon, he figures, hey, why why not? I might just throw out, hey. The, the remedy here is to deny the testimony of the witness that makes my remaining client look bad. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. But I, I, in this world, you know, um, a ridiculous suggestion from a defense attorney could very easily be accept- acceptable by the judge. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see, right? You will see. Okay, we have uh, just a couple more things to cover uh, before... Uh, taking your listener questions. Again, if you have any questions, not just for me or Andy, but for Brian Greer, our SEPA expert too. He goes by Secrets and Laws on Twitter. You should give him a follow. You can send those to us at uh, hello at com. Just put Jack in the subject line. 
And uh, we'll get to the listener questions after a couple more stories. But we have to take a quick break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Okay, before we get to listener questions, we should note that Judge Eileen Cannon entered a minute order on the Mar-a-Lago docket stating that De Oliveira is subject to all the deadlines in the current court schedule. So in other words, she didn't push the May 2024 court date out any further based on the addition of the superseding indictment, which she could have done. When you start adding defendants to a case with, as they did, adding De Oliveira and the superseder, the later you get in doing that, you put that defendant kind of in a tight spot to be able to review the discovery and get up to speed and all that stuff. But uh, so far, so far, she's holding, uh, she's certainly holding De Oliveira account uh, to the current schedule, which I think is a good sign. I agreed. And and something else that came out um, yesterday uh, that I thought was interesting because it connects the Atlanta case to what Jack Smith is doing. We we know we now have, as we mentioned at the top of the show, all 19 co-defendants in the racketeering case brought by Fonnie Willis have been booked into the Fulton County Jail, Rice Street Jail down there. Uh, and all of them are out on bail except one. And that is Harrison Floyd. That's one of the people, part of the conspiracy to intimidate election worker Ruby Freeman. And the reason that he is not out on bail is because he had, I guess, well, let's, let, let me just read you the headline. A Trump supporter indicted last week in Fulton County, Georgia, for harassing Ruby Freeman was charged earlier this year with attacking an FBI agent working on the Justice Department's parallel investigations of efforts to overturn the 2020 election. That's Harrison Floyd. Um, and it was his arrest had not previously been reported. We just found out about this. Offers new information about the breadth of the federal po- probe led by special counsel Jack Smith. So we learned two things. We learned that this guy was arrested for going after an FBI agent, body slamming him, going chest to chest with him and shouting profanities at this FBI agent. And we learned that Jack Smith is investigating, or was at least at the beginning of this year, the intimidation of Ruby Freeman and some of the things that have been indicted down in Georgia. Yeah, really interesting development because it it gets us back to this question, I think that a lot of people had when they finally saw the Trump Jan 6 indictment, which of course only included Trump and mentioned uh, those other notorious unindicted co-conspirators. It, it raised the question of like, what is Jack Smith still doing? Is he just going to draw a bead on Trump for January 6th and when that case is over, walk away? Um, or will, will there be other cases, other prosecutions uh, after we get through the time crunch of addressing Trump first? And I've always thought, uh, AG, and I've told you this before, I, I, that's my guess. I, I don't see Jack Smith as the kind of guy who's going to leave the table crowded with a bunch of unindicted co-conspirators. If you can make the case against Trump, um, I, I think there's a very good argument to make that you could uh, be successful against at least some of those major co-conspirators. Um, and who knows, maybe others like uh, people like Floyd who were involved in the witness tampering efforts in, in Fulton County. And, you know, that, that apture could expand to include the activities in Michigan, um, Arizona, who knows where else it goes from there. Yep. And, and 
I think Arizona, you know, I think I've been all eyes on Arizona. We've had reporting um, this week that that investigation is ramping up quite a bit uh, and that the prosecutors are aggressively investigating. And, you know, you and I have also talked about the the potential um, federal investigations, if they aren't happening already, should already be happening about the, you know, the that whole nationwide effort to tamper with steel voter data, steel voting machines, databases, the breaches in Mesa County, Colorado, uh, Antrim County, Michigan, That's Fulton right. County, Coffee County, mm-hmm. uh, I should say, in, in Atlanta, um, and then all of the cyber ninjas stuff. And then there was another arm of the cyber ninjas that, that also tried to do the same stuff in Michigan, but mm-hmm. they couldn't use their cyber ninja name. So... Anyway, I mean, like all of this, I can't imagine that it's not being investigated. Uh, however, I know that some of the very intrepid reporters in Atlanta have have said that no one in the Coffee County um, breach conspiracy said that they've been reached by anybody at the Department of Justice. So who knows? Um, but it's these kinds of stories where we find out all these months later that the the Department of Justice has been investigating and everybody goes, oh, wow, I didn't even know. And it's like, yeah, there's, think about the 900 other things that we don't know about then totally. at, at this particular time. So we'll see. And and again, even even if it's like the IRS and the Department of Justice looking into his tax fraud, like that has to be happening somewhere. And if it's not, that's just a complete <laughs> tra- like travesty. Uh, so I, I imagine it's happening somewhere. Hopefully we'll learn Fundraising uh, fraud, it. fundraising fraud. I've been waving that flag yep. for 39 <laughs> weeks now. Someday <laughs> cool it's going to come true, I swear. <laughs> and I the cool thing about having a special counsel is he has to talk about his uh, all the things he investigated and his declination decisions if he decided not to bring charges and why he didn't bring charges. Yes. So. Someday we'll be pouring over his 400-page report uh, <laughs> in 10 minutes and then talking about it on television. Oh, wait, was that out loud? I'm sorry. I meant, that, <laughs> I meant for that to be quiet. What do you mean we? Is there a mouse in your pocket? They don't invite me on television, Andy. I think it's because I say I drop the f bomb too much. But I could instantly bring them fifty thousand more viewers, and they you, never. They I have no doubt. I have no never doubt. invite me on, and I can read that. The I can read those things on the fly. Anyway, I I I, I would only be so lucky to be able to be in that awful position. It's it's. Uh... <laughs> It's both good and bad. It has its ups and downs. There's, you know, four hours last night of talking about the mugshot was uh, by hour four. I was like, oh, wow, I don't, I don't know if I have any more spins on this, but okay, here we go. <laughs> more mugshot juice. You can do it. <laughs> it's a mugshot. Is the mugshot coming? Is this the real mugshot? Is that fake? I mean, wow. It was we like all about the mugshot. One, yeah, we did. All right. Should all right. we jump to questions? Yep. Yep. Let's definitely. All right, I got two for you, and they're both uh, again picked for their uh, for their substance and also for their flattery. Excellent. Okay, so the first one comes to us from Pete, and he starts off with "Hello, gorgeous hosts." So right there, you know his 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 question is making it onto uh, the show. He <laughs> says, "No, I really like his analogy here, though, too." So Pete says, "Sometimes I hit a bad drive in golf, and I'm not sure if I'll be able to find it, but I'm also not sure I won't." So I hit a provisional ball only to be used if I cannot find the first drive. And he says, parenthetically, then if I need to use a provisional shot, I take the penalty stroke and I'm hitting three. So Pete is putting it out there that he's following the rules. He's counting all of the strokes, which I like that. 
So now the question, what distinguishes the, quote, fake electors from what would have been, quote, provisional electors to be used only if the count changes from the initial projections? I thought this was an interesting question because it does get at one of the main defenses that particularly some of the actual fake electors I think you'll see them use this in uh, Fulton County. You may even see Trump refer to this uh, in his January 6th federal case. Um, And the way that they charged it, at least federally, kind of reflects this. So in some states, uh, the electors, the fake electors were specifically assured that their fake ballots would not be used, would only be used if Trump was successful in his uh, litigation challenging the election. So in other words, some of those fake electors can can mount the defense that, hey, we didn't really intend to do anything fraudulent here. We were simply uh, providing these votes in, in the case that they were legally necessary later, like if Trump's lawsuits had uh, prevailed. In other, in other states, however, they knew from the beginning that what they were doing was something fraudulent. There's more evidence than just the ballots themselves. And that evidence, mostly the conversations, emails, text messages between the people who organized the electors, shows that everyone knew that this was a, a, this was a fraud. And it was done specifically to create uh, delay in the certification of the election so that the you know you would delay it by sending the 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 sort out fake electors from real electors thing back to the states and then by doing that they would cast the election the resolution of the election into the house of representatives which would very clearly have voted for trump so there are differences in the in the different fake elector schemes state to state and some of them pete i think um, can take shelter in the kind of reasoning you lay out in your question. Agreed, and and they did, yeah, definitely Pennsylvania was one of those um, where they specifically said, "Hey, we, we aren't saying we're the we're the duly elected, uh, you know, electors here. Uh, only if this we're contingent electors." And what was funny is, you know, along those lines, one of the fraudulent electors in Georgia has filed to have her case moved from state court to federal court saying that because she was a, and she called herself a contingent, like (laughs) she's trying to add that language now that it's too late. But she said, uh, because I was a contingent elector, uh, that makes me a federal officer uh, at which like, I mean, that's like saying because you wore a Nixon mask last Halloween, you're a federal officer. Like, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> like, um, no, actually, you weren't an elector and you weren't a federal official. Like, all that's fake. And you can't add contingent now that you, yeah. you know, that you feel bad that you've been arrested. It's like somebody steals the money from your checking account. And they're like, no, I'm a contingent owner of that account. I'm not the actual owner, but I, I had access to I might to one it. day be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can't count me out. Okay. <laughs> so uh, let's go to our, our second and last question. And this comes to us from Robert B. And he says, I start my Sundays by listening to Jack. Thanks to the two of you, I can now hold my own when discussing proffer agreements, how to pierce the attorney-client privilege. And I now know that Queen for a Day was not just an old TV game show. 
Okay, his, <laughs> his question is, Mark Meadows has been indicted in Georgia, although he is trying to get his trial moved to federal court. You have suggested, and the New York Times article also stated, that he testified to the January 6th grand jury. This, this we know. If called to testify in federal court, can that be used against him in Georgia? Can he be compelled to testify in federal court with a pending state court trial in Georgia? So in other words, if he's brought into the January 6th trial, federal trial in D.C., uh, to testify against uh, can he be compelled to testify against Trump? And the answer there is no, because of his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. He can assert his Fifth Amendment right uh, to to in federal court or in state court. It's not like double jeopardy, right, which uh, only applies in uh, in one place essentially. If you you know, if you're tried in federal court, you can turn around and be tried in state court for the same conduct because they are two separate sovereigns. Double jeopardy does not apply. The Fifth Amendment privilege goes with you wherever you go. You have the right state court, federal court to assert the Fifth Amendment privilege uh, to prevent uh, incriminating yourself. Now, the key, though, is you have to be an actual jeopardy of incriminating yourself. And under these, in this question, the way you phrase it, he would be in certain jeopardy of, of, of incriminating himself. <laughs> if he laid out in federal court, all the bad stuff that he did with Trump, Fonnie Willis would be more than happy to use that against him in the state court proceeding. Yeah. So if he did testify and said stuff, yes, that can be used. Um, whether it's state or whether it's federal, we saw this go on with the New York Attorney General Tish James and her case, um, uh, you know, using depositions from for Trump from different things from E. Jean Carroll uh, uh, to to bring over to Alvin Bragg's case, stuff like that. Right. So yeah, anytime you talk and open your mouth in any criminal proceeding, whether it's state or federal, it can be used anywhere else. That's right. That's right. Um, and you know, we saw it with uh, witnesses like Jim Baker in the Durham Sussman trial. Um, uh, stuff that he told the inspector general versus stuff that he told Congress versus stuff that he told the grand jury versus stuff that he told Durham's prosecutors uh, and all of that sort of conflicting testimony, not lies, not perjury, but just conflicting testimony is what the defense attorneys used to impeach him, impeach as, a, him. as a witness. Yeah, so absolutely. all of that can be used. And that is why it was so important and we had to wait, and there was a delay in the Department of Justice's case because they had to wait for those transcripts from the January 6th hearings. You, you, you know, Jack Smith, but, but at this time it was Merrick Garland, absolutely had to have all of those transcripts to ensure that when he brought people before the grand jury or people he had already brought before the grand jury, to ensure that their testimony was consistent so that if they were going to use that person as a witness, they wouldn't be impeached at trial for telling something different to the January 6th select committee that they told to the grand jury or that they told in a queen for a day, um, a proffer session or to any prosecutor or agent. Yeah, that's right. You can, you can unintentionally walk your witness into a conflict that will then undermine their effectiveness at trial. And it's one of those things that, you know, you think about a lot as an, and when you're an agent, you're going out there finding witnesses, victims and interviewing them, talking to them on the street, maybe in their homes. And it's maybe only after a couple of meetings that you actually get them back into the U.S. attorney's office with a U.S. attorney in their, 
kind of interviewed in a more formal way, you just really hope that they keep telling the same story the same way because all your notes from those earlier meetings can be used to impeach the witness if you haven't been doing your job carefully. But anyway, great question, Robert B. Appreciate it. And also Pete. Um, And those are our questions for this week. Yep. Thank you so much. Those were amazing questions. And if you have any questions for us or for Brian, you can send them to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just put Jack in the subject line so we can filter those out and we know to get to them. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to this show. And uh, it's, again, it's the news will not slow down um, and we will keep bringing it to you. I think we will probably have a trial date for the January 6th Donald Trump conspiracy against rights and obstructing, obstructing an official proceeding case by the time we speak again. Looking forward to that. Another big week coming up, uh, and we will be here to go over it all with you. The nuances, the details, and of course, the comedy implicit in, in so much of this. So <laughs> it's all good. AG, thanks again for another great week. All right. We'll talk to you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>